remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text from John 7. Pay close attention to God's gospel. Now, some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out, as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him. But no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had, yet, had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer. And when I go to him who sent me, you will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot go. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this He spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in Him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Thus far the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand and believe Your Word. Help us to thirst more for Jesus. And we ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. My grandpa's farm in Dade County has a dry branch running through the middle of it. On the map, it's called sycamore branch most of the time sycamore branch is dry the only time you'll see water running through it is during a rain or immediately after a rain 
As a kid, when I would go to my grandpa's farm, it always bothered me, and I guess it still bothers me a little bit today, that the branch is dry nearly all the time. It looks like a river. It's shaped like a river. It's wide. It's got high banks. By design, it seems like water should be flowing down this thing. seems tragic, especially as a young boy, that there wasn't water running down it. Most of the time, it's just a dry, would-be river. It's It's dry unless it's raining. And when it rains, sycamore branch comes to life. The water rushes through it and out of it with speed and force, and eventually it feeds into Turnback Creek. There's never standing water in this branch. The water from the sky flows into it and out of it. The rainwater brings the branch to life and uses the branch to give life to another body of water. Our hearts are like sycamore branch. The human heart is deep and wide. It's got high banks that are made for holding water. By design, rivers of living water should be flowing through it and out of it. Your heart was made for the water and spirit, as John calls it, that is from above, that is from God. And yet oftentimes we find our hearts dry. The river has become a dry branch. It's got no water running through it. No water running out of it because there's no water coming into it. It's not being fed. But unlike Sycamore Branch, our problem is not that the heavens are dry. Your dryness is never due to a lack of rain. There's plenty of water and Spirit coming down from above. God pours Himself out in abundance. No, the problem is that you're not thirsty. Or more precisely, you're not thirsty for Jesus. Your greatest thirsts are for things other than Christ. Look what Jesus says in verses 37 and 38 of John 7. Picking up in the middle of verse 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in Me, that is, he who thirsts for Me, as the Scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The people that Jesus has been speaking to in John 7, and really in most of John's Gospel, they don't have living water flowing out of their hearts because they don't have living water flowing into their hearts. They don't even have a trickle because they're not thirsty for God. Their hearts are hard and so they don't believe in Jesus. They don't know the Father. They don't recognize the author of life when they're standing there looking at Him, even talking to Him. And in our passage today, nothing changes. Both the leaders and the regular citizens in Jerusalem fail to see Jesus 
for who He is. They fail to realize that His words are the words of life. We're going to focus most of the time in this sermon on these two verses, verses 37 and 38. In fact, the second half of the sermon is going to be about that, but we need to back up and remind ourselves of the historical context that we find ourselves in today. It's early fall. And the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, is going on in Jerusalem. Jesus stayed hidden during the first part of the feast, of this eight-day feast. But about halfway into it, He went into the temple and He made Himself known. And he started teaching in a big crowd. And he taught with such authority, such knowledge, that he mesmerized even the religious leaders. Verse 15 up in John 7 says that the Jews who had been looking for an opportunity to kill him marveled at his learning since he had never been to rabbinical school. Verses 16-24 record some of Jesus' confrontational teachings. And verse 24 is where we stopped last week. Now look with me at verses 25 and 27 to 27 with your Bibles open. This records the people's response. John 7.25 Now some of those from Jerusalem said, is this not He whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows, or no one will know where he is from. The people of Jerusalem are taken by surprise by the public nature of Jesus' bold proclamation. They knew that the Jewish Rulers were seeking to kill Jesus, as verse 25 indicates. But even more surprising than Jesus' boldness is the silence of the Jewish authorities in response. Why aren't they arresting Jesus? Verse 26 suggests a possible answer. Perhaps the authorities have weighed the evidence and they have concluded that Jesus is, after all, the Messiah. Could this be why? Well, no, that's not why. Verse 27 dismisses this possibility right away. The Jerusalemites have ruled Jesus out as a candidate for the Messiah because they knew where He's from. And they believe, after all, that when the Christ comes, when the Messiah shows up and makes Himself known, no one will know where He came from. The Jews had this idea that the Messiah would come out of nowhere. He would be totally unknown right up until the last minute when He redeemed Israel. Led with military might. And yet, everyone knew precisely where Jesus came from. He sprang from Nazareth. His family was now in Capernaum. And he had been engaged in itinerant ministry for the last few years. But you see, the irony here is that the people in Jerusalem aren't nearly as informed about Jesus' true origins as they think. They're actually right about where 
he's from. They know that, and they're not wrong about his human origins. They know about his human family origins, but they're clueless about his true family origins, which are traced back to the Father in heaven and to eternity. They claim to have pegged Jesus' identity, but they don't know the first thing about who he actually is. So in verses 28 and 29, Jesus continues to teach in the temple. He says, you know me and you know where I'm from. I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Jesus initially acknowledges that they know something about where he came from, the right about his human origins, but then his next words insist that they understand a lot less than they think. Ultimately, Jesus comes from the Father who is unknown to these people. And don't miss those words at the end of verse 28. Whom you do not know. Think about who the you is in this sentence. The you are the most religious, the most privileged, the most well-taught people in the world. They are the people who possess the very oracles of God, the Hebrew Scriptures. They're God's covenant people. Faithful worshipers. Faithful Bible studiers. And Jesus says to them, you don't know God. You want to kill Me because you don't know the Father. I know the Father. I'm from Him. He sent Me. But you don't recognize Me because you don't actually know Him. You don't know God. This audacious claim incenses the authorities. Their, their rage is white hot at this point, And they try to seize Him. Verse 30, Therefore they sought to take Him, but no one laid a hand on Him because His hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in Him and said, When the Christ comes, will He do more signs than these? which this man has done? We're not sure how Jesus escaped the rulers when they attempted to seize Him. The only reason we're given is that it wasn't His hour. It wasn't the time that God had predetermined for Him to die. The hour when Jesus would be seized and crucified in Jerusalem had been set by the Father before the foundations of the world, and the Jewish authorities lacked the power to thwart God's timing. So the Pharisees and chief priests are forced to take a different approach. And in verse 32, we see the Pharisees and chief priests working together even though they did not normally work together. They were enemies. But they had a common enemy who was worse. Than either one of them. So instead of seizing Jesus themselves, they commission the, the temple police officers to arrest him. Verse 32 The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. And then the author, John, does something interesting. 
He shows himself to be a good writer who knows how to build suspense in his readers. He's just told us in verse 32 that the Jewish leaders have sent some officers to seize Jesus. They're on this mission to arrest him, to figure out the right time. But then John just leaves it at that. He leaves us hanging. He doesn't tell us the outcome of their mission right away. In fact, we don't find out the outcome of it until next week's passage. Instead, he goes on to tell us what Jesus is saying and doing at the same moment the temple officers are looking for the right time to arrest Him. And so, as we read the next couple of verses, we're supposed to be thinking about how Jesus is saying these things, teaching with authority, even though the authorities are scheming to arrest Him. Verses 33 and 34, Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to Him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Now, if you've already read John's Gospel at least one time, then you know the ending. So you know what Jesus means in verse 33. He's saying that He has only a short time before He goes to the cross. The cross is the route that Jesus must take to return to the One who sent Him from heaven to earth to die. For Jesus, death is not the end of the story. Death is only His return to glory. His return to heaven. His return to the Father's right hand and to the glory that He had before the world began. And since He won't be anywhere in this universe... No one will be able to find Him. Verse 35, Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does He intend to go that we shall not find Him? Does He intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Verse 36, What is this thing that He said, You will seek Me and not find Me, and where I am you cannot come? As always, The crowds misunderstand Jesus. They imagine Jesus is talking about some anticipated mission trip or mission journey to the scattered groups of Jews who were dispersed throughout the Gentile regions. And and they're appalled at the thought that He might even be planning to teach the Gentiles as well. Once again, John lays on the irony thick. Think about what's being said here. The Jews have no idea what they're talking about. They misunderstand Jesus as they have done left and right throughout this chapter. And yet, as it turns out, there's truth in their words. For Jesus does intend to take the Gospel to the dispersed Jews outside of Israel, and to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. In about six months, Jesus will go to the cross, rise from the dead, ascend into heaven, pour out His Spirit on His earthbound church, and send 
His disciples, His church, on a mission to take the truth of the Gospel to the Jews and to the Greeks and to the Romans, to the Asians, to the barbarians, to all the nations, to everyone, to all tribes and tongues and nations throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. So, the spiritually blind Jews are not entirely wrong in verse 35. And now we've come full circle to the climax of this passage. For the rest of the sermon, we're going to meditate on verses 37 to 39, which are the heart, the climax of this passage. It's what it all points to. Really the whole chapter. Let me read verses 37 and 38 again. On the last day, that great day of the eight-day feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus uses an attractive image here, doesn't He? It's an attractive image to talk about the spiritual reality of being filled with God. Filled with His Spirit. And most people, I think, would love to imagine their hearts as a deep mountain stream that is overflowing. Overflowing with streams, rivers coming off of it with living water. Does anyone not want that to be true of himself or herself? Even before we know exactly what this metaphor means, we yearn for it. We want what it's talking about. And we know that it implies fullness and completeness to the point of overflowing. It speaks of refreshment and fulfillment and deep satisfaction. It evokes thoughts of coolness and growth and life and pleasantness. Of being satisfied and being satisfying. But Jesus is not just a poet trying to evoke emotions for the sake of evoking emotions with His image of the rivers of living water that flow into and out of our hearts. This evocative image refers to something deep and rich and solid and real. The most real thing that is, in fact. So the words aren't meant to just make us feel good because of their beauty and their associations. They're meant to put us in touch with the most powerful and the most important reality there is. The reality that makes an eternal difference in our lives. This reality is a living reality that exists apart from us and yet can live inside of us. It comes from the outside and yet it comes into us and flows out of us. Jesus is offering a desirable, attractive experience, but He's offering it only as the result of a real, personal relationship with Jesus. 
We know that the feast that Jesus mentions in verse 37, of course, is the Feast of Tabernacles. And the purpose of this eight-day annual feast, festival, was to bring to mind the great things that God had done for Israel when He brought them out of Egypt and into the wilderness for 40 years. It reminded the people of how God miraculously provided for all of their needs during those 40 years in the wilderness. One of the greatest needs God met was their need for water. If you remember, more than once. Exodus 17 tells us how the people, soon after they had left Egypt and had camped in Rephidim, were without water. There was no water there in Rephidim. And instead of trusting God, who had just split the sea, provided a way for them to get out of Egypt, and who had been providing manna for them to eat, instead of trusting in God, they started murmuring and complaining. Listen to what Exodus 17.3 says about the thirsty Israelites in Rephidim. And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses. And you may remember what happened after this. Moses cried out to God. He says, what am I going to do with, this, with these people? They want to stone me. So God told Moses to take the, the rod that he had struck the water with previously, the river with previously, and take it and strike a rock. And when, he, when you do that, the the rock's going to produce water for the people to drink and they'll quench their thirst. Now, John 7.37 says that on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, at the climax of the festival, Jesus stood up and He cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. And it's important to know that what was going on at this time at the end of this festival was a ceremony where the priest would go into this body of water and dip some out and raise it up and pour it out so that the people could see. And this was to remind them that God provided water for them in the wilderness when they were living in tabernacles in the wilderness. And it reminded them that God does provide. He does provide water. At that time, at that point, Jesus stands up and He says, Hey, if you thirst, if you want water, if you're looking for water, then look to Me. Come to Me. Drink of Me. Jesus sees Himself as the fulfillment of, of all of the Old Testament, including that rock that produced the water. The rock in the wilderness that produced the water for the Israelites when Moses struck, when, when Moses struck it that rock points to Jesus who produces living water that quenches the deepest thirst of those who drink it. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul explicitly identifies the rock, the rock that produced the water in the wilderness. He identifies it with Christ explicitly. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.4, that the Israelites drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. 
So even in the Old Testament, the, the pre-existent, the pre-incarnate Christ was the source of Israel's spiritual sustenance. Even the Old Testament saints found their deepest spiritual needs met by the personal presence of Christ before He became human. Christ was with them everywhere they went. He followed them in the wilderness and quenched their thirst even with spiritual drink. So when we hear Jesus cry out at the end of the feast, if you thirst, come to Me and drink, we understand Him to mean if you're thirsty for God, if you want your deepest spiritual longings satisfied, then look to Me. Don't look back to the days of old. Don't look for it in the Feast of Tabernacles or in this ritual that you do at the end of it. Don't look for it in the law. Don't look for it in this ornate temple built with human hands. Don't look for it in the power and glory and riches and comforts and recognition of this world. Stop stop looking for it everywhere, Jesus says, except in Me. Just come to Me and drink. And you'll find what you're looking for. You'll find what God made you to drink of and be satisfied. The river that is built into you will then flow. There's no other way to get water running through it. Jesus' invitation in verse 37 is universal. It's for everyone. But it's also conditional. The invitation to come and drink of Jesus is extended to everyone. To men and to women. To boys. To girls. To Jews and Gentiles. To the educated. To the illiterate. To Westerners and Easterners. Northerners and Southerners. To light-skinned people and dark-skinned people. The invitation is universal. But there is one condition that you must meet before you can before you will be able to come to Jesus and drink and be satisfied. There's only one way it will work. You must be thirsty and you must be thirsty for Jesus. You can't just be thirsty. All men thirst. We're made to thirst. We we have these branches, some are dry, some are, have run, water running through them. All men thirst, but not all men thirst for God. Everyone's thirsty. Everyone longs to have refreshing water pouring into them and flowing out of them, out of their hearts. We're born thirsty, but not everyone is thirsty for Christ and His righteousness. Even many professing Christians are not. But before you can drink of Christ and be satisfied in Him, you first must develop a thirst for Him. And it's got to be a thirst that is greater than your thirst for anything else, for everything else. An evangelist once said that the hardest work is not getting people saved, 
but getting people lost. Most unbelievers don't even know that they're lost. So before you can get them saved, so to speak, you've got to get them lost. You've got to show them their need for Christ by explaining to them, showing them that they're dead in their sins and under God's wrath. But a similar thing is true for us believers. The hardest work is not satisfying people's thirst, hard though that may be. The hardest work is making them thirsty for God and dissatisfied with everything and everyone that is not God. To become satisfied in Christ, you must first become dissatisfied with everything and everyone else. So where are you looking for satisfaction? Is it in God alone or is it in something or someone other than God or some situation, circumstance other than being with God? What do you thirst for more than you thirst for God? Whatever that is, is the thing you must do battle with in your heart. What do you want more than you want a close, personal, intimate relationship with Jesus? The reason there are so few genuinely satisfied people is that there are so few people who are looking to Christ alone to satisfy their souls. To fill up that hole that we're all born with. The reason your heart is a dry branch is that you thirst for things and relationships and circumstances and happiness and temporal blessings more than you thirst for God. You will not be satisfied until you experience God's rivers of living water rushing through your heart like rainwater rushing through sycamore branch during a flash flood. And yet, before you can experience God's rivers of living water rushing through your heart like this, you must cultivate in your heart a desire for the living water that exceeds your desire for all the waters of the world. To become satisfied in God, you must become dissatisfied with the world. And I'm afraid that that's too difficult for many of us. Revelation 22.17, as I read earlier, says, And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts, Come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. So you see here that the conditions for drinking of this living water that Revelation 22 is talking about is desire, thirst. We could throw in hunger. And remember what John 6.35 says. This was several weeks ago. John 6.35, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to Me shall never hunger, and he who believes in Me shall never hunger. Thirst. This is speaking of the satisfaction that, those, that, that you can have if you are eating and drinking 
only of Jesus. But the promise in John 7.38, it goes beyond just being satisfied in Jesus. Jesus doesn't just say that our heart will be full when you drink of Jesus with a thirsty heart. He says that your heart will be overflowing. Out of His heart will flow rivers of living water. So the promise here is that you will not only be satisfied, but also satisfying. You won't be a receptacle of living water. You'll be a canal of living water. See, the ideal is not to be a pond, even a big pond, or a lake even. Jesus says you will be a river of living water, a conduit of God's life for the sake of the world, for the sake of others. In fact, verse 38, if you look carefully, it says the the word rivers is plural. God is willing to give you so much of Himself that multiple rivers of living water will be flowing out of you in all directions, like the rivers in the Garden of Eden, giving life to the world. So are you satisfied? Are your rivers of satisfaction flowing out to others? If not, the problem is not a lack of water in the source. The problem is that you're not thirsty enough for God's living water. Because you're still trying to quench your thirst with waters that don't give life. Verse 39, But this He spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in Him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The first thing this verse teaches us is that this experience, this reality that we're talking about, it's real. It's not just an emotion. It's not just something you conjure up. Or if you think it, you know, then you can make it real by your thoughts. It's an objective thing. It is a, an objective person, the Holy Spirit, who is outside of us and then comes into us. And this verse takes us to the cross as the source of the living water. The living water is a person ultimately, not a thing. Specifically, Jesus identifies the living water as the person of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit didn't come in fullness until after Jesus was glorified in His death, resurrection, and ascension back to heaven. That's what the last word there, glorified. He was not yet glorified. That's that's pointing to the cross. The cross was Jesus' glorification. In the wilderness, the water began to flow out of the rock only after it was smitten by Moses. Moses struck it and then it gave the living water. And Paul says that rock was Christ. And we see the same thing happening to Christ at the end of each Gospel. In the New Covenant, the water and Spirit of life begin, they began historically to flow out of Christ, our solid rock, 
only after He was smitten by God on the cross. Because Jesus died on a cross for you and sent His Spirit into your heart, you can be filled. You can be satisfied. And you can be satisfying. Because Jesus died on a cross for you and sent His Spirit into your heart, you can be both filled up and overflowing with God Himself. Because Jesus died on a cross, because He was lifted up and glorified for you, and because He has sent His Spirit into your heart, it is possible for you to live an abundant life in spite of your disappointing circumstances, in spite of your marriage, in spite of your job, in spite of your lack of a job, in spite of your health, in spite of your broken relationships, in spite of your past, in spite of your uncertainties about the future. So drink from Jesus. Drink long and drink deep of Jesus. And His Spirit will flow into and out of your innermost being. Become satisfied with God. Which is to say, become dissatisfied with everything and everyone that is not God. Let's pray and ask for His help in doing this. Father, we thank You for Your Word, these life-giving words. And we want them to live in us and even to flow out of us. We want them to characterize us as disciples of Your Son, Jesus. Help us to be thirsty for You, God. To thirst, to hunger, to desire You above all. Fill us with Your Spirit. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.